The Wellesley News, the student newspaper of Wellesley College for Women, has issued a ringing defense of banning speech. I wish I were kidding. But during a debate on whether to ban feminist speaker Laura Kipnis from the campus, the student journalist published an editorial saying that liberty, free thought, and open debate are not for Wellesley girls. The students say that banning speech they disagree with is not a violation of the principles of free speech because if the speech were supposed to be free, they would agree with it and it wouldn't be banned. But if it's banned, they don't agree with it, so it isn't free or something. The students call speech they disagree with hate speech because they hate it. They hate it because they disagree with it and that makes it hateful. Everything they disagree with is hateful because otherwise they would have to listen to it, which they would hate. So the principles of free speech demand that they ban speech they should, that shouldn't be free because it's banned. Hate speech can be banned without violating free speech because if it were free speech, it would be called free instead of hate. And then they wouldn't hate it and it wouldn't be banned because it would be free and they would agree with it. That's how you can tell speech that shouldn't be banned if Wellesley College girls agree with it. Otherwise, it's hateful or they would agree with it and it would be free. The editorial in the Wellesley News says, quote, and this, I swear, is an actual quote edited for brevity, quote, we have all said problematic claims, the origins of which were ingrained in us by our discriminatory and biased society. Luckily, most of us have been taught by our peers and mentors at Wellesley in a productive way. This being said, if people are given the resources to learn and either continue to speak hate speech or refuse to adapt their beliefs, then hostility may be warranted." Unquote. Now, some of you may read that and say, wow, that's ungrammatical to the point of being illiterate. But this is to ignore the fact that it's also Orwellian to the point of being fascistic. Some of you may ask yourself, how did a group of spoiled, privileged, whiny, spoiled and also whiny young ladies turn into such little Nazis? Well, it's because they were taught by big Nazis. Wellesley faculty also defend the practice of banning speech they disagree with. Six faculty members wrote a letter saying such speech imposes on the liberty of students by forcing them to, quote, invest time and energy in rebutting the speaker's arguments, unquote. I agree. Rebutting arguments also known as thinking or learning, is not the sort of thing we want going on at our institutions of higher education, especially institutions for women. The last thing we want are women who know how to think and debate. Good God, we'd never hear the end of it. The next thing you know, there'd be women walking around forming their own independent ideas. Fortunately for the women of Wellesley, that's not going to be a problem. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. Hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing. Hunky-dunky-dee-dee. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy. The world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day. Hooray, hooray. It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hooray. All right, I am still so jet-lagged. I keep falling asleep at 10 o'clock and waking up at like 2 in the morning, and then I'm just there. I, I forgot to tell this story. Coming back from England, you know, I stayed in England for Easter because I wanted to spend Easter with my son. Uh, my wife and I wanted to spend Easter with our son because my wife is sort of a human being, too. I shouldn't include her. You know. um, but I'm waiting to come back, and I get this email 
that said, from a friend of mine who said the rector, the vicar in his church in London, had preached his Easter sermon on my book, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, and he preached on The Great Good Thing. And I was very puffed up, you know, I thought like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty cool, you know, I was preaching my book in the, in the church. Immediately, I get another email from our cultural correspondent, Michael Knowles, that his blank book had been <laughs> tweeted by the president of the United States. Donald Trump. It was like I just wanted to throw the phone, but bang! I was like, no matter, no matter what happens, that book is going to haunt my dreams. You know? Anyway, speaking of airports, one of the last places on earth that you have to wait online is the airport, right? You have to, and I have to say, the one thing I hate, you know, it's something, I'm like a four-year-old, you know, if, if there's something we have to wait online, and my wife is waiting online, I wander off, yeah. you know, i just like, what? You know, she's waiting online at a cash register, I just wander off, it's like she has to call the security to find, you know, is a, a child, is a child missing at all? <laughs> but one of the other places you have to wait online is the post office, and I, I'm not one of these guys who complains about the post office, I think they do a great job, but I can't, you know, everything is so much faster now and so much more efficient, so much con more convenient that to have to stop your day in the middle of the day to go to the post office just drives me crazy. It's like wham, 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 stop. So wait there, buy a stamp. That is why there is stamps.com. Stamps.com brings the entire service. Everything this U.S. Postal Service does is right at your fingertips in your computer. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer, and it's easy. At stamps.com, they send you a digital scale so you know how much you need. It automatically calculates the exact postage, and stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. So there's no need to lease one of those expensive postage meters. I don't even know if anybody does that anymore. They're, those things are so heavy, they, they're dangerous. But you can just do it with stamps.com. It it's just keeps you from having to stop your day to go and wait online. Right now, you can enjoy the stamp service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitment. So you just try it out by going to stamps.com. You click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Clavin, K-L-A-V-A-N. That's good for us here at The Daily Wire because they know we sent you. So go to stamps.com, click on the microphone and type in K-L-A-V-A-N, Clavin, stamps.com. You never have to go to the post office again. Let's talk about Bill O'Reilly. You know, I didn't really get to talk about this because it was just as I was coming in. It kind of came over and it was still sourced. It was not uh, definite that he had left. And now he's left. And it's really, I mean, it really is shocking. This guy is something like $178 million. Uh, that's the that that's like two years ago of the income of Fox News. This guy is the biggest success. And because about a few, you know, a few weeks ago, the New York Times revealed that he had paid out, Fox had paid out about $13 million to several different women who had claimed he had sexually harassed them. He had to go. And this is, here's uh, Dana Perino making the announcement, uh, tearing up a little bit, it looks like, uh, to on on. She has been hosting for O'Reilly on the O'Reilly Factor. Now it's just called The Factor because O'Reilly is gone. And here's Dana Perino making the announcement. Finally tonight, it is the end of an era here at the Fox News Channel. As we mentioned earlier, Bill O'Reilly is leaving this chair and this network after more than 20 years. Bill has been the undisputed king 
of cable news, and for good reason. He is an incredibly talented broadcaster who raised the bar for interviewers everywhere. He has also held his staff to exacting standards in his quest to put the best possible program on the air, and they are great. And you, his audience, responded in record numbers, making The Factor the number one cable news show for more than 16 years. You have also been loyal, and we can't tell you how much that means to everyone on The Factor. In a memo to the staff today, Rupert James and Lachlan Murdoch, who run Fox News, described Bill this way. By rating standards, Bill O'Reilly is one of the most accomplished TV personalities in the history of cable news. In fact, his success, by any measure, is indisputable. We wish him the very best. So O'Reilly released a statement saying he praised Fox News, but he said it was tremendously disheartening that we part ways due to completely unfounded claims. He denies it entirely. He says that's the unfortunate reality many of us in the public eye must live with today. I will always look back on my time at Fox with great pride and the unprecedented success we achieved and with my deepest gratitude to all my dedicated viewers. I wish only the best for Fox News. His attorney, Mark Kasowitz, released a, uh, it was really released a, well, it was a statement, but it was released partly in a tweet. It says, Bill O'Reilly has been subjected to a brutal campaign of character assassination that is unprecedented in post-McCarthyist America. So he's going the full McCarthy here. This law firm has uncovered evidence that the smear campaign is being orchestrated by far-left organizations bent on destroying O'Reilly for political and financial reasons. That evidence will be put forth shortly, and it is irrefutable. So O'Reilly is having none of it. I asked around a little bit, people that I know, uh, I, I, everybody said they had never seen him behave in a, uh, you know, in an untoward way toward the many, many beautiful women who come through Fox News. It's a place that loves pretty girls and they have them coming through there. It's always easier, I got to be honest, to believe the women in this case, you know, <laughs> like especially you got a powerful guy like that. He's kind of old fashioned. He's got a lot of old fashioned values, hates feminism and all this stuff. It's very easy to see not breaking any laws, maybe not, you know, telling people that if they don't sleep with him, he's not going to give them a job or anything like that. Maybe nothing is as big as that. But, you know, you do want to have a care for your coworkers. You do want to treat people with respect. I mean, like I said, I don't have to because look at the people I work with. But, you know, and here at the Daily Wire, of course, the minute the cameras go off, it's all sex. That's all, <laughs> that's all we do. And I try, you know, I try to be equal. I, I try to harass everybody equally. You know, it's, it's not a gay thing. I just, you know, men, women, I just, I just don't want to be unfair. But the stories are more like the story that uh, Kirsten Powers told to Anderson Cooper the other night. Listen to this. And this is the kind of thing that you know, upsets. These are professional women. They've worked hard. It's not easy to get on TV. There's a countable number of people with these spots. And here's a story that Kirsten Powers tells uh, Anderson Cooper about being on O'Reilly's show. I was on air actually with Margaret Hoover, who's at CNN now, uh, on a regular segment. We were on every Monday and he got Margaret's name wrong and Margaret said, hey, get my name right. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, there's a lot of blondes in this operation. I can't keep you all straight. Megyn Kelly's coming up, starts throwing all these blonde names. Um, and then at the end of the segment says, thank you for your blondness to both of us. So I went to his executive producer and I said, um, he needs to apologize and he needs to never do that again um, or I'm not doing his show anymore. And I was told basically, well, you know, Bill, there's nothing we can do about it. He's a throwback. He's kind of an Archie Bunker. And I said, well, if you mean he's a Neanderthal, then we're on the same page. He can never do that again. I'm a political analyst here. Went to Bill, came back, said, no, he's not going to apologize. So then I went to my, my, I was called into my boss's office. I was told, 
what can we do? It's Bill. There's nothing we can do. Um, you know, we're sorry this happened to you, but there's nothing we can do. I complained to Roger Ailes. I was told the same exact thing. There's nothing we can do. It's Bill. He's a jerk. Nobody likes him. Uh, you know, and then Roger said, you know, Bill, he likes to put up uh, pi dirty pictures and ask pretty girls to talk about them. And so the whole thing was sort of Bill, oh, and then he said, you know, and, you know, what am I going to do? I don't like him, but he makes so much money, there's nothing I can do. That was wait, the Wait a minute, who, who was it who said that? Roger Ailes. And, of course, Ailes, uh, Gretchen Carlson uh, lodged a complaint against Ailes, and Ailes had to go, too, saying basically that there's this whole culture of this kind of, this kind of treatment. Look. You know, is this a crime? Is it a felony? Do you get shot down for this? No. Do I make lots of sexist jokes? I try to. You know, I mean, I try to make every kind of joke I can because I don't think anybody, any political movement should tell me what jokes I can make. If I think it's funny, I think I should be able to say it. But, you know, Kirsten Powers is a highly intelligent, highly talented person. If she had a problem with it, she goes on to say that she stayed off his show. And this is the top rated show on cable. She stayed off his show for three years and then went back and said, could we try this again and don't do that? And she said that she then developed an excellent relationship with him. Uh, Margaret Hoover, whom I've met and is a highly intelligent and extraordinarily attractive woman. Uh, you know, she said she never had a problem with him, but she she got the message to never be alone in a room with him. You know? so she she, and she said, you know, there was this, this culture there. All this is to say that, obviously, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. And I, I know that the sex part of the story is the interesting part. But, but there is something really much more important than the feminist or sexual angle on this. Much more important. This marks... The, a division between Rupert Murdoch, who was 86 years old, and his two sons, James and Lachlan, who, who run 21st Century Fox, okay? So that's the uh, father, the mother company. These two young guys don't, first of all, they're not conservatives, they hate ales. And remember, you know, this is the thing about Fox. You can't staff a place that big with conservatives. There aren't that many conservatives in the business. So there are people on O'Reilly's, you know, staff, his you know, big people on his staff who are left wingers and and feminists and all kinds of things that O'Reilly then goes on the air and disapproves of, but they're working for him because you cannot staff something in show business with uh, with just conservatives. So James and Lachlan, they don't like going to cocktail parties in New York and London and being the conservative guys. You know, they don't like it to when all the fancy people are saying, you know, ah, oh, Bill O'Reilly, you know, poof, you know. They don't like the smell of cordite on them. And they want to move. Michael Wolff writes about this in The Hollywood Reporter. He says they hope to reshape. Here's what he says. He says, for 86-year-old Rupert, Fox News is a key part of his legacy, as well as the family company's health, the most profitable news outlet ever, 1.5 billion in profits this year and among the most influential. For James, 44, and Lachlan, 45, the hope is to reshape this legacy, to move Fox away from what they see as its retro Trump-style views toward, well, something nicer. And we all know what something nicer looks like, right? That means that it's going to get diluted. There's nobody who can uh, replace O'Reilly. Tucker Carlson is moving into his slot. The guy's doing great. But, you know, it's it's, it's a stretch to think that Tucker Carlson is going to take over that spot and makes it, make it what it is. We are in danger of losing the one news outlet that has Brett Baer delivering the news as it is instead of the news as leftists see it to be. And that is our fault. Why has, this not, this, has the success of Fox News not been replicated? Why haven't we copied it? Why haven't we taken care to make sure the flow of information is not governed and monopolized by the left, as it is. 
All right. Um, we, we're not going to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube because we have a, a tremendous guest, a wonderful guest coming on, a woman named Obianuju Ikosha. Obian Uju Ikosha. Did I get that right? Her nickname, luckily, is Uju, so that's what I'm going to call her from now on. But you probably haven't heard of her. You should. She is doing battle against leftism worldwide, and it is an amazing, inspiring story. She will come on in just a minute, but first, you know, Every morning, uh, my friend and makeup lady, Taylor Payne, and I come in here and we clean up the broken vials and pull out the bodies. And I think to myself, maybe we should have hired through ZipRecruiter.com. So here is Cartoon Clavin to tell you more about ZipRecruiter.com. You ever look around your office and wonder, gee, how come my desk is on fire? And why is my assistant's tie caught in the copier so he keeps making copies of his face over and over again? It could be because you didn't use ZipRecruiter.com. Hard as it is to believe, ZipRecruiter.com is actually more effective than hanging around outside prisons on release day and shouting, who'll work for below minimum wage? Believe me, I've tried it, and now look at me. I'm a cartoon for crying out loud. But with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. No screaming for the police when that guy who wandered in off the street grabs a letter opener and holds you hostage. With ZipRecruiter, you can quickly screen candidates and rate them and hire Hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over a million businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Daily Wire. Don't let this happen to you. How come Cartoon Clavin gets killed at the end of all these things? Are <laughs> you trying to tell me? Are you guys trying to tell me something? All right, we're staying on Facebook and YouTube, but uh, come on over to thedailywire.com and subscribe so you can continue to receive me and Shapiro for a lousy eight bucks a month. And if you subscribe for the whole year, we will send you a free copy of the film The Arroyo on DVD. But we're staying on because there's someone I really want you to meet, Obian Uj. Obian Uju Ikosha is a biomedical scientist in hematology. She works in London. I believe she's originally from uh, Nigeria. And she is also the founder and president of Culture of Life Africa, an organization dedicated to pro-life and pro-family messages across the African continent, which is under siege. It is under siege by the left. So here's the thing. We find, we hear from the left all this stuff about cultural appropriation. Don't cultural, no cultural appropriation, no cultural imperialism. And that's so we won't do it so they can. And Uju has been fighting this this onslaught of uh, leftist cultural imperialism in Africa. Can we see her? I can't. I can't. There she is. How you doing? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi. It's nice to finally meet you in person. Oh, same here. <laughs> I just wish we met. I just wish we met last week when you were in the UK, honestly. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot you were in London. I did. I'm sorry. I've, you know, I have so many old friends there that we were running around from place to place, but I would have looked you up if I had remembered. Uh, but try, I'll be back. Try. Uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me, uh, tell me about culture of life Africa. What are you trying to do with this and why why does it matter? Why is it important? What's happening in Africa? 
<laughs> right. And, and just as you said, I, I am a Nigerian and I live in the UK and someone would wonder, oh gosh, what is she doing, uh, doing all this work in Africa? What I was just minding my own business, working as a scientist. I was living what I thought was my dream back in 2012 until the wife of Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, uh, did her massive uh, summit in London where she was starting off this whole population control thing and she was targeting Africa. So I said, oh my goodness, this is this is ridiculous because some of the things she was talking about, I first heard her on CNN uh, with Christian Amampo and I felt this woman is actually insulting my people. So I wrote this thing that eventually then became the open letter to Melinda Gates uh, where I was telling her, you dare not, you don't bring in $5 billion to uh, to Africa to to bring in what you what you were saying was of met need, which was contraception. But she was also doing a lot with the likes of Planned Parenthood and all these other organizations. So that's really how I started this organization. It's just an organization that tries to stand in the bridge between Africa and the Western world because I came to realize really that Africa, some people are trying to make Africa into their own image. They're trying to make us into this liberal island or liberal colony. Uh, and and that's, the, you know, that's the fight I've been, I've been engaged in in the last couple of years. So, so Bill Gates is spending money, essentially, obviously, she's bringing Bill Gates' money to bring yes. a, abortion and contraception into Africa, where uh, yes. is, is there any idea in Africa anywhere that abortion could be a good thing? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely not. I mean, yeah. I come from Nigeria. I was raised in Nigeria as much as I live in the UK now. But I lived in Nigeria till I was 26. I never left my country. So... I mean, it was a shock to me when I came to the UK and I was told that abortion was legal here mm. uh, because even right to the language we speak, uh, it, it, abortion is taken really as an abomination. Like this is, you, a woman does not kill her own or does not allow her child to be killed. So this is a value that is handed over to us from our grandparents and our great grandparents. And we stand on it. And most of Africa actually still does not have legal abortion. And listen to this, most people don't even want legal abortion because even Pew Research has done all kinds of surveys and still find out that in some African countries, I think it was Ghana, where there was 92% of the people said, oh, we don't want abortion and we would never accept abortion. Most countries are, are in the upwards of 80%. So how is it that the liberals, you know, the, the Western liberals, the likes of, of Hillary Clinton and, and people like that, people from the EU, people from the United Nations, how is it now that they're trying to tell Africans that they have to legalize abortion to make African women happy when African women are rejecting Don't want all it, these things? Now, now, <laughs> now, let me here play the devil's advocate almost literally. And yes. there, what, what the great uh, white fathers and mothers are, are telling you is that if only you were as wise as, as we are, uh, you yeah. would see, I mean, there's this, we know there's a terrible problem with AIDS in Africa. Yes. And, and yes. I assume that there are population problems. I don't know if, I don't yes. even know if that's, so, so why is it a bad thing to bring in, say, contraception? Okay, so what we have in Africa, honestly, this is going to sound crazy, but what we have in Africa is not a problem of overpopulation, but urbanization. So people have moved into cities, into the, the, the few cities in the country. So, for example, in Nigeria, I can tell you that maybe 80% of the country live in seven cities, and the rest of the country is completely empty because the schools, uh, the hospitals, uh, the, the basic amenities are found only in the cities or mainly in the cities. And 
job opportunities. So everyone goes in there and they form slums. People arrange themselves into these slums. And that's what, you know, that's what CNN will capture. And so then they tell us, you have an overpopulation problem. But that is not the issue. The point is, in order for something like contraception to take, uh, the African people, first and foremost, have to be convinced that large families are not good things. So I'm um, from a family of six people. First, you're going to have to convince my mother that she should have had four <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> instead of six. Right. But but really, I have seen, uh, you know, large families in Africa who have done well. I have seen large families who haven't done well, but I've also seen small families that have not done well. That that you have three children in Africa does not necessarily assure you that the, the, your three children are going to have food, water, clothing. Right. So should they not have any children at all? Because African governments, we still have problems with them, problems of, of transparency. So when there are bigger families in Africa, as people would choose to have, it's not a must. But but those bigger families then form communities, supporting communities for for the people. You know, so my elder siblings helped, to, you know, helped with, with raising of, of those of us who are the younger ones. And it, it happens like that. And we take care of our parents when they're old because we don't have old people's homes. What happens then when we we, we start having the upside down family trees when, you know, when there are four grandparents or two parents, one child, it's, it's incredible. But the African society is already arranged in this way. And that's how uh, we, we hold ourselves in a resilient way, even through all our problems. What, what about AIDS? I mean, is there, is there a way, is there an approach to the AIDS crisis in Africa that you would put forward that is, you know, is different than this? Yeah. So as a matter of fact, before I left Nigeria, I was actually working as a scientist in Nigeria. And part of what I had done was was virology. And we worked with a lot of HIV people. So the the scandal of of HIV has um, has if we if we if anyone would do any research, there is a man from Harvard University. Well, he used to be with Harvard before Harvard sacked him because he spoke the truth. His name is Professor Edward Green, who had written all these documents because he went out to, to Africa to study HIV and the spread of HIV and HIV prevention. And he was working in the southern parts of Africa. Now, he got to Uganda and he saw what had happened in Uganda, that the Ugandans uh, tried, uh, the Ugandan government got involved and they tried to, to, uh, to, to approach it with the ABC method you know this thing they say abstinence be faithful and then condoms if if you can't right mm -hmm. so but the abstinence the government was so much involved they were going into schools they were going into villages they were telling people to 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 be faithful to their wives to to try not to have multiple sex partners and all whatnot but they were not relying on condoms and even from what these few scientists that have been allowed to i mean as far as they've been allowed they have said that uganda is the one place in the world that has had the highest the the most most remarkable reduction of HIV. It was, it was an amazingly the ABC abstinence, be yeah. faithful, and then condoms if you can. That yeah. was one of the most amazingly successful programs, and the liberals then came in and destroyed it, didn't they? Oh, Andrew, they not only destroyed it, they shut down the Ugandan government. They shut him up. They, they went to, the, to, to President Museveni and his wife, and they made sure that they bought them out of that program. So I went to Uganda seven months ago, and what did I see? There were all these, before, before, uh, before this, there were all these billboards about, oh, we're keeping ourselves on marriage, you know, all these things that were uh, preaching abstinence, preaching just one wife, preaching poly uh, monogamy instead of polygamy. And... 
those billboards are all down. Instead, what did I see? I saw life-size billboards that were sponsored by USAID. This was during the Obama regime because this was sometime last year I went. And it was people saying things like, I'm in charge with my condom. Why don't we get down with the condom? I mean, this was all over Kampala. This was all over Entebbe. It was a scandal. And meanwhile, the scientists who have studied this say that the problem in throwing in so much condom at the same time into, into communities and societies is that people don't even use it right. right they always fail you they, know, the, you know there are all these uh, problems with it these these billboards are up in la too and we are having a massive massive problem with young people especially gay people who are getting sick and they're the ones they add they send these advertisements to basically yeah, making yeah. condoms like you know now it's now it's all going to be fine who is exactly who, who finances this stuff i mean aside from gates who, who else is behind this Okay, so there is a, before before the your new administration now, and I must thank you for that. Before the Trump administration, the, the, in the last eight years, President Obama has put in so much effort into making Africa into this small colony of his. He he came to Africa, I think, twice. He went around and he preached the, the liberal agenda. What Africans did not understand was the Western liberal agenda. Mm. We know because I live in the West, and I can tell you that we don't have this uh, in Africa. We don't have this thing of conservative and liberals, but but we recognize this, those of us who listen to uh, Obama, as, as him going around preaching, trying to make Africans more like the liberal America, more like the re- liberal Europe. So his administration put in so much money, and up to now, there are still some of those projects going on. George Soros, with his Open Society uh, Foundation, yeah. is doing so much. <laughs> always, we always find George Soros in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. He's, the, he's the, you know, the monster under the bed. But, yeah. but there, you know, there are people like Warren Buffett who are putting in so much money because they're very interested in population control. Uh, there are people like Hewlett and Packard, the people who make the, the print, the nice printers. They're actually in Africa. They're not there as people for printers. They're there as people who are trying to push uh, abortion and, and contraception. But uh, there are also organizations like International Planned Parenthood Federation, which you know in the U.S., but they have their big mother organization and they're almost in every African country. There's Maristos International, which is a, an abortion giant here in the United Kingdom. They are very much in Africa as well. So these are all the people who are doing wow. everything wow. Yeah. they can to crush us and put us into a box. Well, let me ask you, ask you one more question. I mean, that is an, an right. impressive array of powerful, wealthy people doing what is essentially imperialism. That is, that is the, almost the definition of cultural imperialism, yeah. trying to push yeah. an agenda that doesn't exist into a That's country that doesn't want it uh, and, yeah. and where other methods have succeeded is there any hope to stop them I mean they're so there's so many and they're so powerful and so rich is there any way yes. how, how, how do you feel do you feel optimistic about what you're doing or not I am optimistic for one reason, uh, but I'm also pessimistic for some other reasons. I'm, opti- I'm, opti- I'm optimistic because the African people are so against. The African people are really what you would call classical social conservatives, you know, when you bring them out and, and try to compare them with the rest of the world. The Africans, I mean, are so resistant to what is going on. But we also have uh, very corrupt leaders in Africa who can be bought. And these people from the West have realized that everybody has a prize. Do you know that uh, sometime last year when Bill Clinton, I think he did his 70th birthday, he did a birthday party. I think it was in New York. There were African leaders who attended this birthday. I didn't know he was doing a birthday party until I saw them on social media. <laughs> they were taking pictures with yeah. Bill Clinton. And I thought, what, the, what are they doing 
what are they doing there? I mean, this is a former minister for finance, but, you know, they know all these people on first name basis. So that is my problem. And the problem that we're having now is that we have real leaders who can be bought and who are being bought constantly. And those are the people that I think that the Western uh, imperialists and these colonial masters, the new colonial masters, these are the people that they're approaching directly. They're not doing much anymore with the populations because they're failing uh, woefully. But uh, th so that's the problem. So every year I keep going back many, many times. I'm going to Ethiopia next week and I'm going to Kenya the week after, but we will keep fighting them. Oh, well, good luck, uh, Uju. Uju <laughs> Ikosha. Am I pronouncing your name right? Ikosha? Absolutely fine. That's great. <laughs> All right. You can be found on Twitter at O at O B I A N U J U. It's at O B I A N U J U or at cultureoflifeafrica.com. Uju, thanks so much for coming on. I hope to get to meet you in person Thank soon. Thank you. Oh, same here. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. Bye-bye. Amazing person. I mean, like, and, yeah. and, and it's, it's something it's something the left doesn't think, you know, they don't see themselves like that. They see themselves as the great white deliverers, uh, you know, bringing this down. And they also, the typical of the left, they don't hold themselves accountable for results, only for their intentions. So their intentions, obviously, are, I'm sure are very good, but they don't think about the fact, like when they went into Uganda and they destroyed that ABC program, they dis they really set loose a wildfire of disease and, uh, and illegitimacy, and it's just uh, so incredibly destructive. All right, it's uh, Hitler's birthday. <laughs> now you can tell because Jay Hay is wearing his little, you know, cardboard hat with the you know, bells. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. So I've been doing stuff, I've been calling it stuff I like about Hitler as a joke, but it's actually stuff I like of movies uh, that concern Hitler. And yesterday we did Downfall. This, I've got to tell you, is one of the greatest movies ever made. If I'm sure in any list of 100 great movies, this would have to be one of them. And Charlie Chaplin, you know, nobody watches him anymore, but he is so... F I was once walking down a street in New York, and I saw this cluster of people just in stitches, just absolutely in stitches, and I walked over to see what they were looking at, and here were all these sophisticated... It was right on 57th Street, so the heart of, like, sophisticated Manhattan, and all these people were just standing there mesmerized outside a TV store because the TV in the store was showing a scene from Char Charlie Chaplin's silent film. And Chaplin did not make many... Uh, sound films, but one of them he made in 1940 because he was so upset about what was happening in Europe, and it's called The Great Dictator, and it's Chaplin playing a dual role as Adenoid Hinkle, <laughs> Adolf Hitler, Adenoid Hinkle, and his other role is the, he is an amnesiac uh, Jewish barber, and this movie, it holds up fantastically, it has classic, classic scenes in it, a scene where Adenoid Hinkle is dreaming of conquering the world, and he just does this dance with a balloon glow that is, you know, it's kind of out of Chaplin's silent uh, movie uh, tradition, which is just brilliant. I, I found it hard to find a scene that isn't full of sight gags, so I will play this, but if you're not watching it, you can't see uh, what's going on and it won't be as funny. But it's basically Adenoid Hinkle, uh, who is Hitler, goes to visit uh, Napoloni, who is uh, Mussolini. He's the dictator of bacteria. <laughs> the country of bacteria. I can't remember what, what Adenoid Hinkle's country is called. It's like, uh, oh, it's Tomain, I think, Tomania. That's what it is. And it goes, and they're negotiating a treaty, and the treaty is not to invade nearby Austerlich. And Napoloni doesn't want to sign the, it wants to 
wants Hinkle to sign the treaty before he removes his troops, and Hinkle wants him to remove his troops before he signs the treaty, and they start arguing, and <laughs> Chaplin keeps arguing. Uh, ordering strawberries because he gets so upset he keeps throwing them over his, sh- them over his shoulder and they keep hitting this guy in the head. It's it's a stitch. I mean, you can see it, but you should watch the entire movie. Just watch this this little scene as uh, Napoloni and Adenoid Hinkle ha- uh, negotiate their treaty. Well, you don't expect me to sign while your troops are there on the border. You don't expect me to remove the troops until you sign? Why not? Why should I? Why shouldn't you? Austerlitz is a free country. So? Your soldiers are there on the Austerlitz border. And they'll stay there until you sign it as a treaty. You'll take them off or I'll blow them off. Gentlemen, this won't get us anywhere. Your Excellency, to quote an old Latin... Chavez! Fluke! He's the right. Speaking to him. Tom Bashar is the... Well, where's my sandwich? Ex- well, give me another one. Can't we sit down and discuss this mm, I'm a guest here. Nobody talked to me in my own enjoyment like that. I ask you, can't we sit down and discuss this thing without passion? I am not a passionate. I am a justice, that's all. I, I want to sign the treaty. I remove the troops. Can't you understand what would my people think signing such a treaty when your soldiers are there on the Austerlitz border? I will not move a soldier until you will sign. No? Not until you clear that border will I sign anything. Then my soldiers remain. Then I kick them off. Want to move it from you, a hickey, and my artillery take us like this and throw you to pieces? Yes, and my aeroplanes will bomb your artillery like that! You want to start a world war? I'll get you one! You win the world, I'll throw in the ocean! Gentlemen, please! <laughs> strawberries. Strawberries. You got you to see it. It's classic stuff. I mean, I, I'm sure if you're just listening, it's not as funny. But it is really good. And it just devolves into an entire food fight where they're accidentally eating all this hot English mustard. The thing that that I love about this film, <laughs> it's, just, it's just hilarious. The two of them wind up on the sofa just like gagging on the English mustard. The thing that I love about this is like uh, Mel Brooks's um, The Producers, Springtime for Hitler, you know, laughing at these guys. Chaplin said in his autobiography that he would not have been able to make this film because it's so funny and so touching if he had known that the Holocaust was happening. You know, it's like, and the thing about the thing about evil, and I've said this a number of times, evil would be hilarious if it weren't for the human suffering. If you could take out the human suffering, evil is the essence of satire because it's the essence of the stupid things people do that so you know a guy comes to power and says you know i know what's going to really help our country let's kill six million of our citizens set the world on fire and bring like hell down on time people go ah it's a good idea i think that's why why didn't i think of that you know i mean it's it's it would be hilarious if it weren't for all the dead you know and so the fact that chaplin didn't know how bad it was but but when you look at the guys who we see talking these these right wingers now it's the alt-right i hate to include them on the right because i don't feel that they're true conservatives but these guys who are so proud of their whiteness and think that you know all the ideas in history grow out of bloodlines instead of out of thought and the instead of uh you know out of the thought of athens and the thought of jerusalem and christ and all this they're people who just reduce it to but they're hilarious they would be hilarious if they weren't so damn destructive and chaplin just catches that he catches what fools they are and 
it is just an absolutely uproarious film. It really, you really should just sit down and watch it, uh, you know, with the family. It is just a really wonderful, wonderful movie. The Great Dictator, 1940, Charlie Chaplin, the great Charlie Chaplin. That's it for today. We have another guest tomorrow. I think uh, Mike Duran is coming on to discuss why uh, conservatives won't give Donald Trump a break. That should be a popular Daily Wire theme. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll never get out of here alive tomorrow. But uh, he's, he's really great, and it's, it's worth, um, it'll be worth talking to him. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show, and we will see you again tomorrow.